So we're actually going to start a series on the uh, armour of God, you know, a particular fascination. And it's actually building on to what we've already started in the area of looking at prayer and spiritual warfare. And so uh, we're going to go over this. So, Sorry about that. We actually have a, a quite a new sound system that's operating. Lots of things have happened behind the scenes. And so we'll just have a, a few little what they call teething problems. And uh, I probably don't need that much volume. No. So, but they'll, they'll find me eventually. So, uh, guys, can we have up the, um, the PowerPoint? PowerPoint. Wonderful. Here we go. And we're actually having in 16.9. So we're doing a, a spiritual warfare series. And this week I'm going to give you the uh, background to the battle that we face as Christians. Do you know that if we uh, take a text out of its context, you're left with a con? You can actually make the Bible say anything you want if you actually don't do the hard work of actually letting the Bible be what it really said to the original hearers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You know, we did have a, a guy who did predict the end of the world yesterday, and, uh, and we're still here, aren't we? And he's a, he's a guy on the TV. People pay him lots of money so he can be on the TV. And he wrote a, a prediction in 1994 that Jesus came back. So, you know, I don't even know how these people get airtime, but they do, sadly. So we're going to look at spiritual warfare and dig down. And initially, I want to get into the context. So the next slide, thank you. Eventually, I'm going to be able to do it myself from here, which will even be better. So we're looking at the, uh, the epistle, the letter to Ephesians. And uh, you know who knows that a roadmap is a very useful thing to get you from point A to point B? Yeah. Uh, and that some people struggle to use roadmaps. Now, far be it from me to ever use my wife as a sermon illustration, but I would never do that. But I have had the experience of giving a roadmap to somebody who will remain nameless, and we could not find our way, <laughs> no matter what we did and stuff. Um, you know, it's, they say it's a bit of a male thing that men can do maps. Thank you, Pastor Dave. <laughs> and it's a bit of a female thing that they can't do maps. Now, I'm not going to go into that argument because I want you to be my friend. But, you know, it's, but we understand there's nothing wrong with the map. There isn't, is there? The map's accurate. Well, you know, sometimes you think, you know, it's a GPS or whatever. But the maps are generally right. The problem's not with the author. The problem's with the reader. You understand? A lot of the criticisms that you've picked up from our popular culture about the Bible, you know, that things like the Bible's full of contradictions and, you know, the Bible talks about a God of the Old Testament that kills babies and, you know, the God of the New Testament with a soppy hippie Jesus and all that sort of stuff that comes out of our culture is a problem with the reading, not with the problem with the author. If we actually read the Bible for what it is... And sometimes do the hard work of saying, what does it really mean? You actually end up with a book that actually proves itself to be what it claims to be, the inspired word of God. It's God's disclosure, it's God's revelation to human beings. And we understand, for just for example, with the area of Corinthians. Now, if you lived 2,000 years ago and I said that you were a Corinthian, I would have just insulted you quite badly. I would have questioned your morality. It would be the equivalent of calling you a, um, I need a nice word, an armadillo. <laughs> Ooh. It was worse. It was actually worse. To say that someone was a Corinthian was to say that they had poor morals, that they were um, promiscuous, and that they could not be trusted and stuff. So when you read the book to Corinthians... It's interesting that it's talking a lot about sexual purity, yeah? It's talking about dealing with sexual sin in the life of the church. So the context actually helps you understand. And the trouble of some people that want to get into spiritual warfare, they dive into chapter 6, verses 10 to 20, and they don't give you the broader context. I don't want to con you. I want to give you the background to the battle. Because without the background to the battle, you're not going to win. So who would like to win? Three of us. Thank you very much. So it is very good. The Bible is God's roadmap and it is entirely efficient and entirely sufficient to show us how to get to heaven. Hallelujah. 
it will get us there. But we do actually have to have a concern for the context. Next slide, thank you. So let's look at the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time of the writing of the New Testament. It was a big deal. About 250,000 people lived in the immediate city. And perhaps if you count up all the hamlets and the people in the hinterland of the area, you might have been looking at as much as a million people lived in Ephesus of what's now uh, called Anatolia of Turkey. It's now in Turkey and stuff. And it was a big place. It had amphitheatres. It had brothels. It had baths. It had public toilets. Now, the public toilets in the ancient world were interesting. Do you know people are strange? But the public toilets in the ancient world were public toilets. No cubicles. You would actually go out to the marketplace and the toilets were actually just a long bench that everybody just sat down there and did their business and talked about, you know, what's happening in the marketplace and stuff. When public toilets were public toilets. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's different, isn't it? Uh, I, I would find that challenging now. <laughs> I would find that very challenging. I don't even like someone sitting in the cubicle next to me. <laughs> Just in case they might make a sound on my... I'm funny, and that's Westerners, I suppose. But it was you know, a big place... And it was also the occult capital of the world. It was a place renowned for its magic, its superstition, its gods. It had a particular uh, focus on female gods, which uh, we will talk about later as we get into the text. Next slide, thank you. So it had, of course, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Diana. The Romans would have called her Diana, but they would have been, uh, the Greeks would have called her Artemis. And this is uh, an image of Artemis there on your right-hand side. This was a magnificent temple. Uh, you know, the scale, the size of it would have been pretty breathtaking. And, you know, when you would have walked over, it would have been bright-coloured uh, marbles that were polished up. It was, a, you know, a huge thing. And Artemis is uh, this uh, Greek god of uh, hunting, She's the fertility godless goddess. She's got these animals underneath her. You see down past her waist, it's like these figures. You probably can't see them, but they're different forms of animals, often bulls. And then she's got these like uh, um, bulbous objects around her breast area. Scholars don't actually know what they are, and the best research tends to suggest that they are representations of the testicles of a bull. So... Um, the idea being it's Baal. You heard of that? The Baal in the Old Testament, the Lord ba Baal was the, the major male god that was always a problem to the children of Israel. Well, his figure is that of a male bull. And he's another fertility godless, and they goddess, uh, he's, a, he's a god, fertility god. And they used to uh, at times celebrate by uh, castrating bulls and then hanging the testicles of the bulls on the female object to somehow improve her, the, the technical word is fancidity or her uh, ability to be fertile and stuff. So an interesting girl, uh, she was considered to be a very strong lady and uh, we'll talk a little bit about her a little bit more long. But this is the context of Ephesus, a place where the occult is an incredibly significant part. And if you can remember from your Bibles, in the book of Acts chapter 19, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas go to the place of Acts. They set up a school, and over about two years, revival comes to the city, and the revival is so significant that the silversmiths that used to make their living basically out of making statues of this girl here and selling them out of silver went on a riot and they caused a huge deal. The whole city got turned upside down. And uh, as a result, of that, revival came to the city and people came out and they had a bonfire of all the magic stuff that they had. And they burnt this bonfire and the, it was recorded by Luke that the value of what they burnt was 50,000 days wages. I mean, absolutely huge. In modern terms, we are talking literally millions of dollars. I mean, wouldn't you love to see that to come to Armadale, you know, to our city here where there's such a move of God that out come all the bongs and, you know, the, 
the demonic T-shirts and the records and, you know, all the stuff and the, you know, that's been such a part of the evil of our society and just to see it go up in smoke in Jesus' name. So this is the context, you know, really big things are happening. And the moment the gospel came to Ephesus, there was automatically a confrontation between light and dark and a huge revival took place. Next slide. Thank you. Okay, now to understand the, um, the section, so the way that you do Bible study, my friends, is this. In order to understand the word, you must understand the sentence that the word is in. Because otherwise, you know, you don't know if you're talking about a bear, or a bear as in, you know, carrying something. You actually got to, the word's got to be in the sentence. Then to understand what the sentence means, you've got to look at what it's in the paragraph. And to know what's in the paragraph, you've got to know what it's looked like in the, the, the chapter. And then you've got to know what the chapter is in the book. And then you actually have to know what the book is in the Bible. I have just taught you about 20 lectures of hermeneutics in one session. But that is basically what it is. You will not understand the book of Ecclesiastes until you understand that where it sits in the book. You won't understand where a chapter fits unless it fits within a thing. Now in the book of Ephesus, the structure of the book is... Basically, Paul would always preach half of his stuff as doctrinal. This is what we believe. And then we'd say, this is how we should behave. Part of it was doctrine, part of it was devotion. And I'll split right down the middle. And his point, he starts off by saying, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are in Jesus Christ? When you come to faith and you have that miracle of being born again, do you know who you are? Because unless you know who you are, you won't know where you're going. You won't know what you can do. Knowing who you are, he says, is essential for you to be able to be victorious in warfare. You know, if you don't know that you are actually the son of a general and that you have all this military history, you are not going to be able to break through. And then he says, if you know who you are, then you know where you're at. Then you know the position you can function out of. And then he takes all that truth and he rolls it out into the devotional side of it, which is substantially about your relationships with other people, your relationship with your wife, your relationship with your parents, your relationship with your masters and your bosses, and talks about relationships with people. Then he talks about relationships with the spirit world. Okay? So that's the basic division of the book. But there is the next slide. Um, Another way of looking at it, and I do like it. It's a little book by Watchman Nee, Sit, Walk and Stand. Some of you may have read this book. It's a little one. Watchman Nee was an incredible Chinese missionary and had some great insight, born really out of prayer. But he actually just says that if you go through it, really the first part of the book talks about sitting with Christ. Then it talks about how we are to walk. Then it talks how we have to stand. And that's his summary of the book of Ephesians. And whilst we could say that you know, some of his commentary work and grammar could, have been, you know, could be adjusted, but the idea is brilliant because Christianity starts off with the word rest, starts off with the word sit. You cannot do anything unless you've come to the place of sitting with Christ, entering into relationship with him. It's out of that position of union with Christ that all of life, all of victory flows out of that relationship. If you go back to the book of Genesis, you know, God caused Adam and Eve to be vice regents, to be uh, his representatives on earth running the created order. You know, what an incredible privilege it was. God created this incredible, beautiful world. And then he said, I'm going to create two creatures that will run it for me. They will be the managers of planet Earth. And that was our original mission, to look after this beautiful creation. What a, what a terrific job, eh? And then what people don't realize is that we committed high treason. We actually said to the king who appointed us to look after the Earth, no, actually, we don't want to, we don't want to submit to your rulership. We don't want to submit to your authority. We want to submit to our own authority, and we join the devil in high treason. That's why it's a big deal. It really is. And so, but, you know, in that whole thing, before the fall took place, we find that God called human beings into the place of work, 
But before, they, before that happened, there was the seventh day and they rested. So you rest before you work. You rest before you minister. It's out of rest that the Christian life is meant to flow. Be, be nervous of Christians that can't rest, that have got that edge to themselves. There's that drive in them that doesn't seem to be centered out of rest. Because if you come to Jesus Christ, you're coming out of rest. And so we have this incredible picture of us being invited to join with Jesus and to take a seat along with him. We used to have a throne in our church. I don't know where it is now. It's around somewhere. I did look for it. But well, it's in kids' church. I did look for it. When I was at the National Conference of the Assembly of God, I did that and I missed the last step. And, uh, and I took three or four roles. And, you know, the people go, ooh, ah, you know, thinking I'd really hurt myself. But I was really good. I just bounced up to my feet like nothing had happened. And they all applauded. <laughs> it was all part of the act, didn't they? So you've got to imagine, here's, here's a throne in heaven. Jesus is in the grave and the devil thinks he's won. He's having a party. He and his demons are hooping and hollering up. They think that they've won. And then on Sunday, something happens. The power of the Holy Spirit enters into that cave and Jesus is risen from the dead. Not only does he stand up alive and breathing, but he's now glorified and he's lifted by the Spirit of God and he's taken into the spiritual temple in heaven. He presents his blood, which washes away all sin for all time. And he declares it's done. It's finished. We've got the victory. And as he presents it before the Father, the Father says, well done, my servant. And he gives him a a throne to sit upon and he sits him down. And Jesus sits down on the throne because the job's done. Hallelujah! He rules and reigns in heaven. The job is done. It's awesome. It's fantastic. And then right next to that, he's got a seat for you and me. Hallelujah. He's got a seat for you and me. And he says, if you believe in me, if you'll trust me, I will lift you up spiritually so you can be seated with me above every name, every power, every dominion, above everything. If you can sit above it and rule and reign with me. And that's where spiritual warfare starts. It doesn't start down there under the problems. It starts up there looking down at the devil, looking down at the demons, rather looking up saying, I hope we can make it. It comes from being in the right position. And that position is in Jesus Christ. So it's a great thing. He says, but once you've learned how to sit, hey, one day I want to tell you, Jesus is going to say, that gospel, that, that preacher's done a really good job. And there's the last soul that I've chosen to get saved. I wonder if he's going to stand up. And the invitation goes out. You know, will you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Saviour? Can you come down to the front and turn from your sins and accept Jesus Christ? And as he walks down to the front, Jesus is going to say to the Father, Daddy, it's time. And he's going to stand up. And when he stands up, it's done. He's going to come back on a white horse with the armies of heaven and the saints of God to the sounds of hallelujah, the Lord God reigns. Hallelujah, the Lord God reigns. He's going to be the word of God on a white stallion. He's going to have the sword in his hand that's bright and it's two-edged. He's going to come and he's going to make it right on planet earth. Hallelujah. Oh, give the Lord a clap. That's, that's worth clapping the Lord for. So we are invited to come and sit with God. But then as we sit in that position, then we're asked to walk. So we go from sitting to walking. Walking is the biblical metaphor for life. It's about behavior. It's what you do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And Paul's idea is this, is that we need to walk worthy to the calling that we have. If we're seated with God, if we're co-regents, if we are serving and ruling and reigning with Christ, the Lord of life, then we ought to be worthy of that calling. 
that the calling of God is a high calling. You're called, my friend, by the living God, by Yahweh, by the omnipotent, omniscient God. You're called. It's a high calling. Does you know how special you are to know that God's called you? He's called you by name. He's called you with destiny. It's a tremendous high calling. The devil's frightened of you if you ever knew the calling. But sadly, some of us don't walk worthy or in alignment to the calling that we have. You know, I don't know about you, but, you know, families can be interesting. Families can be interesting. But, you know, even our family, we just have a, we just have a little thing. Well, Keatings don't do that. You know, maybe other families would do certain things. But if you're Keating, there are some things that we don't do. You know, if you're in the family of God, it will affect your behavior. It'll cause you to walk in different ways. And that's then spelled out by Paul in terms of certain ways that we live and our relationship with each other. And then he says, once you can sit down with God, some of us need to come back to here, learning how to sit in the presence of God, and get all our identity and all our union from this place. Once we sit there, that gives us power to walk. And then we can get into the place of spiritual warfare and stand and win the battle in the name of Jesus. But you cannot get to victory without these other stages. You understand the context? You understand there's a progression involved and that we need to go through stages of growth Otherwise, we will end up being in the wrong place. Now, if you were to take Mike Keating right now and say, Pastor Mike, you've just been caught up. The Australian government has just reintroduced conscription and because we can't get enough people to go to Afghanistan. Pastor Mike, you are so young and so trim, taut and terrific. We can see you as being just an incredible soldier on the front line. So we're going to call you up. You're called. That's a pretty high calling. It's high calling. I mean, I don't want to go shoot people, but it's still a high calling to go fight for Australia, you know, and stuff. But who knows that that doesn't mean I can just get on a plane and fly there and run out there and say to the Taliban, I'm here! (laughs) You know what happens, don't you? That's stupid. Stupid. I have met some Christians who are... I didn't say that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. Oh, I would never say that. But I met some Christians. <laughs> whose rational thought processes may be slightly impaired by their lack of reality and understanding of the Word of God. <laughs> In other words, I... Uh, Okay, next one. Next slide. Okay, so with the devil, people make a mistake between two extremes. We've talked about this a little bit before. We either make the devil too big, so we become demon-obsessed, or we make the devil too too small, where we actually don't give him any consideration at all. Both of those are extremes. And the Bible asks us to stand. When it comes to spiritual warfare, we are to stand. Okay, so next slide. Thank you. Uh, So we need to know our enemy, and the uh, devil is our enemy, and the Bible says that we are not ignorant of his wiles. The word there in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 is the word methodia. It says that the Satan is a Methodist. Now, I've got nothing against the Methodists, (laughs) but we need to hear that. The Satan is a strategic person who operates in cunning method. And there's a direct play on words going on here in the Greek language because Paul says we're given the panoplia to actually fight against the methodia. You hear the rhyme going on? Thank you, John. He's definitely... Was it Caleb? Rainer? Oh, Dr. Rainer, of course. You hear it. So be careful of the methodia. Put on the planopia. The full armor of God is given to us that we might be able to live and survive against the methods of the devil. 
Now, I've taken up just a little thing as a bit of a kinetic learning thing, but I, I have a fully equipped sword and stuff. But you know what? I had to put my sword on today. If I didn't put my sword on today and I needed to actually do what someone did in, in, the, in the earthquake in New Zealand, they actually did successfully amputate a person's leg using one of these. But saved his life. Saved his life. So the knife is sharp. And apart from the fact I've used it to cut pears and, and apples, it's reasonably sterile, stainless steel. And there is, a, there is a sword. But who knows that even with a thing like this, that's not going to be very good for actually uh, doing, a, doing up a screw. You know, that, I actually got another one for that. In order, I can be given something that's got all this ability, but unless I'm using the right thing for the right task, I'm going to mess it up. In fact, I could make it worse. Now, this happens also with Christians. They get it wrong so many times. Dr. Val says, do not ascribe to the devil anything that can actually be put down to human stupidity. Some of the stuff, it's just us doing bad stuff. But we have to know enemy because he's a cunning enemy. He doesn't like you, he doesn't like me, and he's got a plan and a strategy to destroy you. I'm not joking. He does not like you, and he's got a plan. He's working his plan. I thank God that God's got a plan for us as well. It's a good plan, a plan not to harm us or to prosper, but to give us a hope and a future. Hallelujah. Next slide. Don't like this. Okay, so 1 Corinthians, sorry, Ephesians chapter 6 says, We wrestle not. And the trouble is, most Christians wrestle not. But the Bible says we wrestle not against principalities and powers and evil forces. The default setting of most believers today is that they're theoretical Christians. Excuse me, not meaning to insult us, but we're theoretical Christians and we are practical atheists. We're, we're in our thinking, in our worldview, we've adopted Christian ideas, but when it comes to practice, we actually don't believe what the Bible teaches us. When you actually watch what happens. Because Paul says that we have a spiritual enemy that's dark and evil and is trying to destroy you. And sometimes, so when you have that thing come through the mail or that conversation with your wife that suddenly goes down or so, this stuff happens. It's not always what you think it is. Sometimes it's just spiritual warfare and we wrestle not. So the default behavior of most people is that they don't wrestle and yet the Christian life is a call to wrestling. Okay? It's a call to wrestle. It is, isn't it? I like the... Um, oh, oh, where am I? Wrestle not, yeah. The previous one had the chess player. You know, I like that because I used to play a lot of chess in my early days and I used to think I was quite good at it. I used to play it sort of like sub-grandmaster standard on my computer, which... Doesn't really mean you're a grandmaster, but it makes you feel like you're a good grandmaster <laughs> and stuff. Plus, you could always do, you know, undo the last move and stuff. But you know, the devil's the devil's calculating, my friends. If I do this, then he will do that, and then if I will do that, then he will do this. Because he can't come at us face to face. He's got to trick us. He's got to outsmart us and stuff. The word is uh, the word literally is. To defraud someone by conning. You know, we, we talk about a con artist today. He will talk to you in a certain way to get things out of you that you shouldn't be giving him. False pretenses, you know, making it. C.S. Lewis says there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every split second is being either claimed for by the devil or by the Son of God. Every split second, even now, there's a competition going on for your attention your concerns, your worries, your anxieties. Right now, everything is being battled. and so, uh, Next slide, thank you. So we, we actually need to understand then that we are fighting a war on three fronts. When Hitler made the mistake of going to attack Russia, he then put the war onto two fronts. And some military strategists said the moment he did that, he began to lose the war. That fighting the war on two fronts was a strategic error. Friends, whether we like it or not, every one of us is fighting a war on three fronts. 
Yeah? One of those fronts is the world. One of those fronts is the flesh. And one of those fronts is the devil. So not everything we're going to face is the devil, all right? Some of it's going to be the flesh. Some of it's going to be the world. And I don't know, where's your greatest challenge? You know, you'd have to answer that for yourself. Is your greatest challenge the world? You know, the pull of the world, to conform to the world, to live as worldlings do, to spend your money the same way that a worldling does, you know, to use your sexuality the same way that the world does, you know, to use your ego the same way the world does. Is that where your challenge is? Or are you being challenged in the flesh? I want to eat too much. I want to... You know, I'm being drawn along by pride and those things of the, of the sinful nature. Is that where your challenge is? That's my biggest challenge. The world doesn't bother me too much. I don't even think the devil bothers me directly too much as a person, as, a, as an individual. I think he's certainly had his way up our church at times. But, you know, in terms of me, he tends to leave me alone. My, my struggle is the flesh. You know, occasionally when my alarm goes off at 5.30 in the morning to go for a walk and a talk, my flesh says, sleep in mine. You deserve it. It's funny how I always deserve it. <laughs> so, but look, if the world's your problem, you know, getting that tattoo, spending your money on something you shouldn't, eating too many Tim Tams, you know, having a binge on something, right? if, if the world's your problem, you know, and that's conformity, the Bible says that we're not to conform to this world, but we're to transform cowardice in the modern church is conforming to the world's patterns, that you don't stand out in the crowd, that people don't know that you're a Christian, that there's no difference on your life. You just want to blend in and be part of the secret service. Don't let anybody know I'm a Christian. That's what conformity to the world looks like today. You look the same, you speak the same, you tell the same jokes, go to the same video shops, write, write the same. The Bible says that when we come to battling the world, that that's not a time to speak in tongues. You do not beat the world by spiritual warfare. You beat the world by faith. 1 John 5 verse 4 says that this is our faith that even overcomes the world. You actually just got to believe it. You actually got to believe that when I give my tithes into the offering, I believe that I can't help but God pay my bills. You know, I actually believe that I cannot afford not to tithe. My mind's been changed. It's a faith thing. I actually believe that when I put God first in my life, I open up a bank account that God will take care of everything else. I actually believe that if I seek first the kingdom of God, that all these things will be added unto me. I believe that. But that's a faith thing. You've actually got to believe it. You've got to believe that this is the best way to live. That if I live a certain way and if I stand out of the crowd and I do it God's way, somehow then suddenly life will make sense. That instead of me feeling driven and nothing's good enough and I don't have enough stuff and I don't have enough friends and I'm lonely and I'm bitter and all these things, all of a sudden doing it God's way, you have joy and you have peace and you have purpose in your life. It's a faith thing. I tell you, you don't have to face it forever because as you walk in faith, you find out, I believe, I receive, I believe, I receive, I believe, I, I get it. It becomes actually self-confirming. As you trust God, then the evidence follows. As you trust God, then more evidence follows. Believe and receive. That's the Bible way. When you pray, believe, and then you receive. But sometimes we just have to believe. Oh, I'm doing my best to preach. Doing my absolute best to preach. But that's, that's how you overcome the world. You've got to believe it. You've got to believe. And the Bible says if you put your faith into that, you will have the victory. You get the victory, but you've got to fight it the right way. Now the flesh, see I'll put it to three Fs for you just to make it easy for you. You know how you deal with the flesh? You've got to flee it. You know, when, when Joseph got brought before Potiphar's wife and he flee, I don't think it because Potiphar's wife was 74 stone, had one tooth and a missing eye. I don't think that's why he ran out of the room. <laughs> I think she was a very attractive girl. And he's in that environment. You know, thank God he didn't say, Oh, Jehovah, give me strength. 
Please give me strength, Lord, to overcome the lust that I'm experiencing in my body right now. Please help me to witness to this girl. (laughs) What did he do? He ran from it. Friends, how do you overcome alcohol, substance abuse, you know, the things that weigh upon the flesh? You don't go there. You remove yourself from it. The Bible says that you are to flee from youthful lusts. Some of us have to remember we have to flee from oldful lusts as well. We have to run from things. And the Bible says that if we will run, we will be free. The Bible promises in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 30, that no temptation that will come your way can possibly ever defeat you. And even if you think it's too hard for you, at that very moment, God will open up a way of escape for you. Hallelujah. You get the victory. But you've got to do it the right way. That's not the time to be speaking in tongues. That's the time to be running. You know, when you're in the fighting the world, that's not the place to actually run. That's the place to have faith. And finally, when you come to spiritual warfare, the Bible says that we're to face him, that we're to stand, that we are to submit to God and stand. And the devil, it's his turn to start running. Hallelujah. Oh, Lord Jesus, help them, God. Can someone get excited? Can someone get excited? But can you imagine? Next slide. Thank you. Who's ever played this, no, this game, Rock, Paper, Scissors? I think there's now a new game called Rock, pa- Rock, paper, li- Rock paper, Scissors, Lizards, Spock, Lizards. It's, can you say it for me? Yeah, very good. There's a new game out. That, yeah, anyway. Who knows that you've got to have the right response to win? If you pick the wrong response, you lose. And so with Christians, what often happens is the devil's attacking them in spiritual warfare. Instead of facing, facing the devil, they just face the devil. And that doesn't work. Instead of running from the temptation, they try and pray their way through. The truth is you've got to actually be smart enough to know the strategy that's required to meet the strategy of the enemy. He's got strategies. He's got methods. Well, the Bible says that you've got ways to respond as well. That will give you the victory. You know, if all of a sudden, you know, the Koreans, the North Koreans actually did want to destroy Perth. And, you know, so they brought a little submarine into the Swan, Swan River and, you know, popped up in front of the, the bell, you know, uh, Dick's, Dick's, Dick's uh, Richard's Needle out of the tower. And they, and they popped, popped off a little, you know, Polaris missile or something, and they blew up the bell tower. Ring and ding, you know, it'd be terrible, wouldn't it, stuff like this. Now, you know, the, the all, but the, the government thinks it was terrorists. So what they do is they mobilise all the land forces and they go around looking for all the terrorists on the land. Well, who knows that doesn't work. What if, you know, in other words, they came across and they bombed it by, you know, the aeroplanes and stuff, but then they started looking for submarines. You know, we actually do this in the church of Jesus Christ over and over again. We come at our life's challenges sometimes the wrong way. And before we actually react, sometimes we just need to say, God, what's happening here? Is this a demonic attack on my life or is this a flesh attack on my life? God, give me wisdom because I want to be able to respond in the right way. Because if I respond in the right way, I get the victory in Jesus' name. Amen? So can you see how this context is actually important? You need the right approach to each form of challenge. Next one. We need to come into I rebuke that clock in Jesus' name. Uh, next one. Thank you. So just pulling it all together. Um, Ephesians 1.9. Well, did I skip over one? Uh, can we back up, thanks? And back up once more, I think. No, that's the right one. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul starts off his section about spiritual warfare by saying, Finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and in his might. Now, this is hooking into something which goes back to the doctrinal section in Ephesians chapter 1. So in other words, we are asked, when we come to the area of spiritual warfare and facing the devil, we are told some great advice. Be strong in the... Be strong in the... Be strong in the... Be strong in the... 
And the, and the Bible's point of view, it's not a case of, well, you know, I'm not, I've got to pull up my socks and, you know, it's me trying to get strong in God. It's actually not that about, it's, that's not it. It's more like be strengthened. Receive the strength. Receive what God has already got for you. Draw down on the power of God. That's how you be strong in the Lord. You don't have to work it up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. It's not about singing and dancing and getting yourself into some sort of mood and hyping yourself up in some sort of a spiritual corroboree. It's about actually knowing that God's on His throne and that there's power there and that if you will simply unite yourself with Him, Power will flow into your bodies and you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will win. So be strong in the Lord. And so he's hooking it back to this particular passage here. And he's just, Paul is raping the language to try and give us some sort of an idea of just how strong God is. He's used every word available in the Greek language. He's left nothing out. He's got superlative of superlative upon superlative upon superlative. He's just trying to get the message across that he is strong. So this is how it comes across in the English version. But you know, it misses something. What is the immeasurable? How big is immeasurable? It's, the word is literally hyperbalon, which is no matter how far you can throw a ball, it goes beyond that. It goes beyond. No matter what comes at you, my friends, God's got power that goes beyond that. No matter what the limits are, He has a power that goes beyond the limits. Hallelujah. He has unlimited power, immeasurable power. It goes far beyond what we can ever think, imagine, whatever. And it's great power. This is the word megathos. All the young people know what mega is, don't you? You know, it's a mega deal down at McDonald's, eh? They need to start charging me sponsorship for that and stuff. So it's mega. It's huge. It's just not unmeasurable. It's huge. It's big. It's powerful. And it goes on to power. It's dunamis. It's, where, where we, it's the idea of incredible power that's latent when you look at the dynamite stick. The dynamite stick itself isn't actually that powerful, but it contains lots of power in it. It has potential for explosive power. This is the power of God. It's immeasurable. It's mega. And it's potentially, potentially laden with incredible explosive power. It goes on to us, according to the working, that's the word energia. It means it's active, it's action. This just isn't power that sits there like in the atomic reactor, you know, locked in behind its shields and all its protective device. This is power that's out there. It's moving, it's active, and it's great power. It's kratos. It's huge, it's magnificent. This is about action. It's about getting it done. This is power, then it goes beyond. Last one is Isthos, which is strength. He has used every word in the Bible, in the dictionary of Arlington, to tell us how great God's power is. He prays this. I pray that the eyes of your understanding will be open to see the amazing power that you have in Christ Jesus. All let eyes be open to know how strong you are. If we can convince the elephant that he's still weak and that little chain that he wore as a little baby elephant still, still has him pinned. But let the chains be broken. Let eyes be open. Let you see today just how strong you are in the Lord. Not in yourself, but in the Lord. It's great, huge power. He's used every superlative known to himself. And uh, I'll just throw to a video now because here's a guy who's trying to do the same thing. Some of you have seen it before, but it's terrific. He's just trying to say how wonderful God is. But he runs out of words, so he thinks. But Paul's trying to do the same sort of a thing here. He's trying to just let you know there's nothing left for him to say. So you need a revelation. You need a revelation. You need eyes open. So thank you, guys. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. 
He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he challenge. He's wanting you to understand how great the power of God is. He actually then goes on to say, as a, as a means of demonstrating it, that as you have a revelation, this is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It has death concrete. You know, the biggest tsunamis in the world, the biggest atomic reactors, most of the power that we see cannot give life. And Jesus raised from the dead. Not only raised him from the dead, but then seated him at the right hand of the Father, which basically means that he's above all principalities, power, might, dominion, every name that's named. I won't go into it today because we'll unpack that more. But every name that's made. Not only is this a power, but put Jesus in a place where he rules and he controls everything. That's a massive power, an incredible power. Controls everything, even the church of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. So anyway, I need to let you go home. So we'll quickly finish now. Next one, when words won't work. Breaking news. Saddam Hussein was, had been captured. That was a time, I suppose, when the war fought a... Uh, in an official sense, came to an end. But who knows, about 4,000 US soldiers still died. You know, we are part of an occupation army. When you said that you were to become a follower of Jesus, you actually signed up to be part of an occupation army, which means that there is some that will take casualties. There will be some deaths, but he's defeated. He's gone. So we need to be aware that this devil is defeated. and He's gone to hiding, but he's still armed and dangerous. Proceed with care, but we win. And so we need to be smart about that, not be stupid. The next, uh, we've talked a little bit about how some believers play. Next slide, thank you. Some people come at demonic spiritual warfare a little bit like this. You know, they think, you know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. We're going to bind the devil on this and bind the devil. It's stupid. The book of uh, Jude actually says, you know that uh, this is what Jude says, chapter. Uh, well, there's only one chapter in Jude, verses eight and nine. Likewise, there are also dreamers. Say dreamers. What are they? Dreamers. They're not in touch with reality. They're dreamers. They defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of spiritual dignities. Even Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil. When he disputed the body of Moses, he dared not bring a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, Michael the archangel, he's a bit stronger than I am. I'm just Michael the human. <laughs> Michael the archangel, when he got into spiritual warfare, he was careful to do the right thing. And he, what he did was he located his authority in Christ. The Lord rebuke you, not me. And when we start picking up a few ideas, we've read a few books, we've been down to Curon, got a couple of CDs, sometimes you can actually put yourself in harm's way. You know, I, I, time has gone, but, you know, just for the sake of just saying, I'm not joking. A number of years ago, there was a, no one will know who I'm talking about. And that's not, this is years ago. There was a guy who was a, a lay elder in a church, an Assembly of God church. He was a preaching elder. And it seemed that his whole family was together um, you know, he was a good man and it just looked all good on the surface. And he and a friend of his decided to go to Africa on a missions journey. Isn't that a good thing to do for Jesus? They went on a missions journey and they went there and they ministered in villages and they saw countless souls saved and saw miracles. They saw, you know, miracles that we just dream of seeing here in the West. And then on the last day, for some reason, he decided with his friend to go and visit an area of the occult where they used to do witch ma uh, black magic and witchcraft on a particular hill in the village where they were. And they just went up there really just in a bit of a tourist frame of mine, you know. And when he went up there, uh, you know, he felt something there, felt a bit uneasy. But that night, he then went and had sex with a prostitute. Came back home, the, the family was devastated. He passed on a venereal disease that actually made his wife very sick. The family separated. The girls actually went off into all sorts of disaster. And I could just, I could tell, I could take hours to tell you the tragedy, the tragedy, the tragedy, the tragedy that flowed out of that little pinpoint. And today, if he was here today, I'd tell you. I was stupid. 
Now, I don't want to, be, don't want to be, make it scary and all the rest, but he was stupid. He did not show wisdom with what he did and how he did it. Now, if he'd gone up there praying in tongues and fasting and different things, maybe it'd been different. But I want to tell you, don't be stupid when it comes to these things. Is that okay? You know, you've come to church to have your pastor tell you not to be stupid, isn't it? <laughs> but I'm telling you the truth. You won't get this. And finally, we will bring the plane into land right now. Uh, worship, worship is warfare. As a church, we are certainly on the improver. We appreciate the musicians and uh, Sam for all the technical stuff that goes on behind the team. But we actually need to appreciate that worship is the number one means of warfare that's available for us as Christians. Oh, I'm so glad you agree, John. Is it John? Yeah. Rainer again. Rainer. Maybe I should say it to this side. Worship is the number one way that we do warfare. Got to the front row. But it's true. It is actually the truth. When we worship God, things happen. You may not see it, but you'll feel it. And what we wanted to do is actually we're wanting to see Armadale, Kelmscott, Gosnell bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's got to start here in worship. In the book of Jehoshaphat, long story short, but when they wanted to bring about a victory in warfare, they sent the singers and the musicians in front of the army. And as they sang out the high praises of God, guess what? The Lord says, I'm going to work on your behalf. Who's got areas in their life today that you would like the Lord to be working on your behalf? Do you know how you do that? Sometimes it's not through speaking in tongues. Sometimes not through fasting for 40 days. Sometimes by coming to the church of Jesus Christ and standing up, raising your hands and actually bringing out the high praises of God. And as you do that, as we're praying there and we're playing that song, I've got the musicians up now, we're playing The Devil's Defeated. I just felt in my spirit the angels up in heaven were saying, what's happening down there at Brant Road in Kellenscott? They're making our sort of a sound. They're making some sort of a victory note here. And they were coming to the meeting because there's a sound that will bring the presence of God, the power of God. And then suddenly you go home and things are different. There's a check in the mail. There's a job for you. Your wife's nice to you. All sorts of things can happen because you know what it is to do warfare. So let's stand today and we're going to sing The Devil is Defeated. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.